can hardly wait for the feast. I will be allowed to stay up for it, won't I? You will. You certainly will. I do hope the time goes quickly. Poor little thing. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. I'm Glumpuddle. And I'm Jim Van. And I'm Rillian. And we are, yeah, halfway through BBC's 1990 TV miniseries adaptation of The Silver Chair. This is episode four of The Silver Chair, and it has two of the darkest moments in the Chronicles of Narnia, most horrifying and disturbing moments in the series are in this episode. So there's a lot to live up to. Mm, yes. Um, it's, it's like two really disturbing, dark moments in the same chapter. So it ends up being in, in this episode. But a quick recap. Episode four of The Silver Chair begins with Jill, Scrub, and Puddleglum at Harfang, wondering what the words under me mean. When they try and fail to remember the signs, Aslan appears to remind them. Uh, they act merry all day and look for an opportunity to escape Harfang. And then there's the horrifying moment where they eat talking stag. And then later they learn that they are next on the menu. They manage to escape Harfang, but slip deep down into Underland and are greeted by the Earthmen. And episode four ends with our heroes on a boat crossing the Sunless Sea. Some imagery and some scenes that really stand out in people's imagination and memory of the book. And so, how did BBC on their modest budget in 1990 do? Well, uh, as is tradition, we'll start with our best and worst in this episode. Uh, let's start with you, Rillian. Let's start with your... Up to you. Want to start with your best or your worst thing? I mean, what do you guys want to do? Because if I do my best and then you guys <laughs> follow up with the worst, I'm going to, you know, it's going to kind of skew the... The mood here, I feel like. Okay, well, why don't we start with worse? How about we all go around and do our worst this time? Then we'll all go around and do our best. So we'll end on a happy okay. note in theory. So I, I did struggle a little bit with my worst because uh, spoiler alert, I, I overall liked the episode. Uh, uh, maybe my favorite episode so far. Um, I would say the overall there's a trend in the BBC adaptations where there's little points where they go into C.S. Lewis lip service mode. And it's like, well, we have to say this one part and it doesn't have near the gravitas as in the book. I, like I felt like the, the points that really stuck out to me, like the, the talking stag scene had some issues. Like, there was some gravitas there, but I didn't feel like it had nearly the weight it did in the book. Not another bite. We've been eating a talking stag. But it's awful to think animals being killed at all for us to eat. I suppose to them, if the animals here do talk, but... Oh, dear. She doesn't understand. You've never lived here before, Poe. Some of my closest friends were talking animals. I suppose so, but we have to eat. We brought down the anger of Aslan. That's what comes of not attending the signs. Also, the the reveal of them finding out that they're going to be eaten, like you can either kind of play it for horror or play it for comedy. I felt like it was not really played for either. It was kind of mm. just. I felt like it was just sort of a hey, we have to check this box. Yeah, Puddleglum saying no, I taste very nice and complaining about that, which is obviously supposed to be funny. Yeah, just being so offended. Right, right. Which which I felt like they could have. 
done that a lot better. But I felt like there were, it felt almost like a checkbox moment. That's a good point, though, where they, I think it, they did lean more into comedy with both Stag and mm-hmm. with the cookbook reveal. Um, when I would have probably, I thought they were kind of well done as points of comedy. Like, I love the moment I texted you guys the screenshot. When, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, 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 you know, they they realize they've been eating talking stag and Eustace and Puddleglum spit it out. And there's just this amazing cutaway to Jill where she's still got a giant piece obnoxiously sticking out of her mouth. She's just like, huh? And yeah. uh, which I thought was genuinely funny. Camilla Powers did a nice job and the editing is really funny. It's an effective comedic moment. But I think I would have preferred them just lean into the straight up horror of it instead of having a, a like I laugh there. But maybe right. in retrospect, I didn't want to laugh there. Yeah. And some of the, I remember in the book, Jill gets really, really freaked out, like claustrophobic in the in in the underworld. I thought, also thought, I'll just throw this out there, was hilarious because Jill has this gigantic freak out about going into this teeny tiny spot. And they're like, oh, you can hang on to my ankles and he'll hang on to yours. And then they just crouch down and walk yeah, yeah. through. <laughs> it wasn't really the best execution. But <laughs> I was like, what? what? <laughs> no, there were just a few moments that I thought it was just like, okay, it felt like they were just checking a box to get a little moment in from the book. Um Whereas, like, for example, I thought Kamala Power's acting in that scene was actually pretty believable. She actually acted like, I mean, yeah, you're right. Jim Banner to the execution. But, like, <laughs> wait, that's what she was freaked out about? They just kind of crashed down to keep walking? But Camilla did a good job. Yeah, she yeah. did a good job. It could have been really cheesy, and she did a yeah, nice job yeah. with it. But there were just a few moments. I think that just that kind of trend I've seen. There were a couple moments here, the two that probably jumped out the most. A um, little bit in the case, but mostly the... Uh, uh, it felt like there wasn't enough of a an oomph behind them eating the talking stag, which is really significant, and then uh, them finding out. And I don't need it to be a reveal because I like how they played it up to that point where it's played for comedy that they're just so oblivious that they're going to be eaten. Um, I just felt like they should have either, you know, they didn't have to make it a big reveal, but they should have, I thought, played that out a little better. Yeah. It is an interesting balance of both of those moments. Well, not the talking stag, but... Uh, certainly the cookbook, I think there is an element of, it's a dark, disturbing moment in the book, but you also kind of, I find myself kind of nervously giggling reading that in the, in the book. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're gonna, they're, they're actually, they're actually in a menu. Well, especially the, especially the part about the marshmallow, where they go, well, some scholars question whether that should even be eaten <laughs> I at always all. wonder, so did C.S. Lewis choose the name Marshwiggle because it alphabetically could be after man in a cookbook? Is that like one of the reasons he went with that name or was that just an amazing <laughs> coincidence that he came, Great I don't know. I, I always wonder about that. But uh, yeah, that talking stag moment. Oh yeah. Oh no, I always remember what I was gonna say. Yeah. Uh, about the time. Interesting inclusion. Yeah, because it was like, it was, I, I like some of the performances around, but it's sort of like, oh, there he is. Oh, now he's gone. Like, oh, by the way, ginormous dude right there. Oh. And ginormous who's, who's, skull who's right I don't know. next I th- to him. I think that they pause and they give that a moment and they even have some, they they add some dramatic kind of, uh, they add a little more drama to the dialogue where, you know, in the book, the the Earthman says, you know, it says he will, you know, it is said he will wake at the end of the world. And here they kind of broke that up. So it says, it is said he will wake. And Paul Glum says, when? And so then he responds, at the end of the world. And so they kind of gave that some mm-hmm. dramatic, wait, that's not even in the book. I, I think relative to the pacing of the episode, they did. And understanding that Father Time's not needed for the plot, the actual plot at all. Um, I, I thought they give him sufficient attention and I like seeing that it was just kind of a reveal that 
um, wow, we're at the bottom of the world. We're in a completely other realm. It's not just, oh, we're underneath, we're underground in some cave somewhere. Like, no, we're in like another world, basically, that has its own rules and you never know what you could possibly find. We might as well be on another planet. And I thought Father Time did kind of help add to that feeling of isolation. Like, we are somewhere completely different right now. Who is that old fellow? That is old Father Time, who was once a king in Overland. Now he has sunk down into the deep realm and dreams of all the things that are done in the world above. They say he will awake. When? At the end of the world. The talking stag moment, returning to that, there's a couple bits there where they... Uh, took some of Lewis's narration and they turned it into dialogue. And one of them worked really well, I thought. I think it was, they're talking about how, oh yeah, we've all been acting merry all day and pretending to be happy. And I think um, the scrub says, well, girls always do that kind of thing better than boys. And Paul Oglum says, and even boys do it better than Marsh Wiggles. And that's a bit of narration <laughs> mm-hmm. that Lewis, right. as a narrator, gives you in the book that they translated, translated into dialogue, I thought, very successfully. And they also after they realize they've been eating talking stag kind of lewis's breakdown of now you know puddle glum felt horrible he was born narnia and felt felt you know mm-hmm. then there was eustace who had known talking animals for a while but then jill of course would have no idea they kind of took some of that explanation lewis gives and gave it to the characters fairly convincingly i thought like it felt pretty natural weird continuity error that cody pointed out that eustace says that some of his closest friends have been talking animals. Well, if by some of my closest friends, you mean one. Right. Okay. Right. So that was an interesting little yeah. uh, error there. But anyway, some very memorable bits of narration that I thought sometimes that feels forced. Like in the Don Treader movie, when Skander Keen says, you know, oh, you used to scrub. If anyone so deserved a name, they kind of shoehorn right. it in there. But this, this times it worked pretty well. Okay. So your worst then is what exactly? <laughs> Sorry, what's your worst? It felt like they were just checking boxes on uh, moments of the adaptation. Okay. Points. That's fair. Okay. Well, then I think I'll go with my worst now. And um, it, th- this was an easy decision for me. Uh, the worst is the performance of the warden, it, the first gnome we meet in Underland. So, what make you here, creatures of the overworld? Who is it? Who's there? I am the Warden of the Underworld. And with me stands a band of under-earthmen, fully armed. So, quickly, tell me now who you are and what is your purpose here in the deep realm. It's so funny you bring this his performance up because when I was, the one line of his I ever remembered, like from, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, last time I saw this, was, yeah, yeah, that, that line from, uh, with uh, Puddle Glump, where he says, he will awake and he was well, at the end of the world. So I remember thinking that was kind of a good performance. And that one line is like his one good line. That I actually it's good. Liked. I liked his delivery on that one line. And every, I thought, oh, I remember the warden. He was actually a surprisingly good actor and everything else was wrong. And I didn't <laughs> like it. And it took me out of it. I'm like, oh, man, even though I, I liked the way they looked, you know, for uh-huh. the most part. But it was like, oh, man, when they looked so OK. The design is okay. It's not nearly as interesting as what's described in the book where there's this huge variety, this kind of randomness, and some have three toes and some have seven, you know, and there's this 
randomness. I didn't get that, but the the, the look wasn't bad. And even the, like when the lights turn on, you see the lights, the tor- torches or whatever they are, they're using that. I was I was decently atmospheric, and that was pretty cool. Some were yeah. really short, some were really tall. Yeah, or, so I guess I guess they normal. could say they tried. I guess not, not some were not really tall, but some were normal height. Right. Okay. So I guess you could say they tried. Yeah, I think the thing that kind of struck me most about them was. I don't know, just the costume and makeup just looked really uncomfortable. So I just felt a little uncomfortable watching them because it's a bit like the beavers. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. It's just more like, I don't know, it almost took me out of the moment slightly just because I was more like, oh, that's instead of like, oh, look at those characters. I was like, oh, look at that very uncomfortable looking bodysuit. Yeah. I, I think the the reason the performance of the warden why it's so disappointing is I mean obviously it's completely different from the book where they're they're so you know they talk I imagine talking very slowly and they're very sad I know that Puddleglum says wow they all look very sad and I don't really think they looked all that sad yeah actually. they just look like hey where you there <laughs> right. don't, don't, exactly don't and, the and you know what you know how they behave they behave pretty much like how creatures might appear in Narnia. Whereas, again, having his performance be just be so, I guess, for lack of a better word, just normal. You feel like the director said, okay, guys, uh, you're all the basically the soldiers of the villain in this. Uh, you're Go. gnomes down here, and you're all the bad guys. Right. And you're soldiers for her. Right. Okay? Go do your thing. Like, in the book, you <laughs> really get a feeling that we are, might as well be in another planet right now. that Because the, 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 the way they act is so different. Um and I think having him have this have this British accent, just like everybody else, and <laughs> onward, it was it was almost reassuring. You'd rather um, them have a different accent? Anything. <laughs> <laughs> that Could might try. be accomplished in a Netflix version. Could try. Um, I like the episode, too, but that is my worst. We're going to get to the best very shortly. Jim Fan, the worst thing in this episode for you. I think... It's been mentioned already. I think, honestly, when I was thinking back, it was kind of hard to pick. But I think that the... it Not quite hitting the horror of the... Of them finally coming to the full understanding of, like, these people are not only eating talking beasts... Marshwiggle! Some authorities think this animal... Unfit for giant's consumption because of its stringy consistency and muddy flavor. Oh, is that nice? Is that nice? I would have thought. I would have thought. I would have thought it would taste very nice. Not quite hitting that beat where they just leaned, they just kept leaning into the comedy. I feel like it would have been so much better if they had been able to like use all of that comedy in a way that now all these things that you thought were funny now get twisted and you're like oh my gosh this is actually like super horrifying you know that they need to get out but then they go from that to something which is arguably worse but if you don't understand what they're running from jill actually says i mean we have to eat (laughs) <laughs> like Jill was gonna be like, well, you know, that's a shame, but I'm hungry anyway. Yeah. Pa- pass the ketchup. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I, 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 I get like, it. What? I get it. She's new to Narnia, but I thought that was a little much. A little on um, those. Look, given credit, they do. You, you know, Eustace has a. Oh, my friends were. Even though it's not quite right, my friends were talking beast, and Puddle Glum does look really distressed and heartbroken. So maybe he was categorizing Aslan. Oh, that's true. So that technically speaking. Okay. We'll go with that. 
retcon fan theory. Solved. We did it. So that's our worst. Before I transition to our best, I wanted to make sure we have time to talk about an interesting moment right at the beginning of the episode where they're talking about what does under me mean? And they're not sure. And there's actually a funny moment where Tom Baker, Puddle Glum, looks under, he looks at his feet like he's looking underneath him. <laughs> under me? I don't see anything there. Um, but, and then there, Eustace is trying to remember the signs. He's like, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. And then Aslan appears and says, okay, here is what it is. No. no. Here <laughs> you go. To journey north until you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Three, when you find writing on a stone, do what the writing tells you to do. Oh, but... He always goes just when I want him to explain. In the book, there's a moment where they cut out of the of the previous episode where Aslan appears to Jill in a dream, but he, car- he carries her over in his mouth and makes her look out the window, and that's when she sees. That's when she sees under me. So it's, Aslan does a similar thing in the book, where he's like, "Okay, guys, uh, fine, I'll step in and I'll show you. Here's what's going on." <laughs> so here they cut out. They cut that out, and they ha- they just have Aslan read the signs to them one more time, and he seems kind of like, "Really, guys? Really? I got to do this?" And then they're kind of like, "I hate when he does that." <laughs> There's no like, "Oh, the the Lord of Narnia." No, it was like, "Oh man, him again." <laughs> Yeah, I forgot that part was there, mm-hmm. too. So it was surprising. It was like, oh, Aslan's mm-hmm. back. Because it, I felt like it's been a while, even though he was in the previous episode. It, it does It does kind of, uh, I don't know. They, they keep doing this thing where, like, there'll be some tapestry or something like the, <laughs> the you know, here's the sail of the Dawn Treader, and then Aslan says, uh-huh. I like, cast me in. <laughs> Back in, sit down. Oh, Aslan said something that was horrible. It's just <laughs> way know? easier than dragging that lion costume. I, or I understand <laughs> that, but I understand that. But I think for me, it re- reinforced to me is like it was very validating because I felt like yes, I was right. In the book, it wasn't that they were just too forgetful and too stupid to write it down. Oh, if only we had brought a pen yeah. and pencil. <laughs> I mean, the real message was they weren't remembering the signs when they were focused on hot baths and. Good I think they sell that pretty well. In the in the show, overall. they did they did that, but then they went back to they went back to the whole oh yeah, what was it again? But they forgot them because they weren't attending to them. You know, if if you don't repeat right. yourself something, just... of course you're gonna forget it if you don't repeat it to yourself often enough. Mm. What I was waiting to happen was because you know the way it goes is they're they're wondering, you know, looking at the at the writing under me, and they they can't or they can't remember the signs. And so Aslan appears and says, here's the second sign. Here's the third sign. You must do what the writing tells you. And he disappears. I was thinking they were going to go, because um, then for a while they go, under me, under me. But what does that mean? Under me. What does that mean? I think Aslan's going to reappear and say, it means look under the city, okay? <laughs> <laughs> under there. <laughs> Come on, guys. You have one job here. <laughs> anyway. It's not that hard. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was much more powerful in the book, when, of course, when Aslan carried jill in his mouth and said look over here um and there was that being imagery of him being firm with her and scary in his mouth because he's angry and they can't convey the puppet the can't puppet can't be angry right. yeah. <laughs> but there's that great i understand they can't do that but it's just a shame because in the book it's so beautiful that that imagery of Aslan carrying jill in his mouth and on one hand that's really scary he's in she's in his mouth like he could eat her and there's a sense of her being sort of disciplined but also 
he's carrying her like he, you know, a lion would carry a cub, like it's his child. And so there's sort of love, but also discipline in it at the same time. And I thought that's why I love that imagery. So this was less effective than that. Um, but it was nice to see a kind of angry, loud, growly Aslan in the BBC version for a change. Um, that, that, that was that's what the one thing I did enjoy about it. I was guess it was underwhelming apart from that. Okay, we're uh we're over well over twenty minutes in, and we like this episode, but we haven't talked about much that we like about it. We sprinkled it in there. Yeah, it's in there, in there. Okay, really, your favorite thing in this episode? Go. I feel bad because it's not so specific, but I liked that the stakes felt high in this episode, hmm. and mm-hmm. we've talked about that a little bit before, like the first episode where it's like, okay, the king is sad. That's really unfortunate. But like in the book, you know, they convey, okay, Narnia has a real problem here. And uh, so the stakes didn't feel very high in the first episode, whereas that equivalent part of the book, the stakes felt a lot higher. Um, And here it's like, okay, they, you have this whole background of, okay, they're going to get eaten. They can't leave. Aslan's angry at them. They have to go. They have to find the way into the, under the ruined city. Then, oh, they're down there. And even if certain parts of weren't pulled off, right? I get it. It's hard to do underground because you have to have light coming in from somewhere. It's hard to make it look dark without some kind of light piercing. Yeah, and, oh, I can't see. They're all saying, I can't, I can't it's, see it's, a thing. And they can totally it's see It's hard things. to do. I get it. We're in a tomb. Now, Paul. What are we to do? Tell me, what are we to do? I wish I still had my tinderbox. It would come in handy, yeah? Yes, when did you have it last? I was trying to remember. I had it when I gave you the eel stew. I thought it was when the dog chased us into the cave. You might be right, yeah. Oh, stop it, you two! Difference does it make where he lost it. He lost it. We're in the earth, hundreds of feet below the ground. This time, I can't see how we're ever going to get out. But yeah, I thought that overall, it felt like the the stakes were high at the beginning, and they just kept getting higher, which I liked. And I felt like it matched the book. And I felt well, like lower it, it technically, gave... they get lower, but you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm picking up what you're putting <laughs> down. <laughs> but yeah, that I know it's very kind of intangible, very thematic, but it was a it was a theme throughout the episode that I felt gave it momentum um, and it, it made you care about what was going on and made you pay attention. So that's, that was kind of what I liked about the episode. The stakes generally being high. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And it was interesting as they kind of established their peril and they spend more time and maybe this is an improvement. They spend more time in the book kind of, they're not really sure. Once they decide they want to leave Harfang, they kind of realize, huh, we can't, we can't even open this door. Are we prisoners? And in the book, they seem to decide right away, we're prisoners. The giants are clearly bad guys, and they won't let us leave if we just ask. Where here, they're not sure. They're kind of feeling it out. And there's even a couple times where they're like, you see, we're not prisoners. We're fine. We, we should be okay. So I actually thought that kind of more gradual feeling things out, trying to decide if the giants were good or bad, it helped build the suspense better and was more believable to me in in concept anyway than what's in the book where they just instantly go from the giants are probably fine to oh no we're prisoners so that felt more believable quick mention i like that eustace thought it was interesting he has a much more prominent role in this episode than he does in the book where he's really taking charge 
uh, consistently. He's really the one directing kind of the escape plan. Um, and there's a few other moments where he's kind of, uh, seems to be almost, he's kind of become the leader of the group in a way. Um, and that doesn't really happen so much in the book. He's kind of in the background through a lot of it. I thought that was interesting. Jim Fan, your favorite thing in episode four of The Silver Chair. I feel like I say this a lot, but I honestly really, for this episode specifically, I liked the amount of content that they got into this episode. Um, I remember a few episodes back when we were trying to guess like where the episode breaks were for the next few because none of us could remember. And I've definitely never watched his episodes. And someone brought up, okay, the next episode's gonna probably get us all the way through like them getting to Harfang and they'll be inside mm-hmm. and you know, it'll be a little bit into that storyline. And I was like, there's no way. Like then there would be a whole episode that would be just that one half of a day basically and then a little bit of the underground and i just didn't think they would be able to flush that out like i didn't think that was enough for a whole episode but i was watching this episode and i was like man they not only did they flesh it out but it was all interesting i didn't feel like any part was too slow i didn't feel like any part was too fast i felt like it was like just right in terms of like didn't have a lot of filler yeah, there wasn't a lot of filler at all, but it wasn't too fast either. Like they had, mo- you know, like that whole part before they even leave the bedroom, you know, like that was not just rushed through. Like it was, they took their time. Well, there's clearly one to escape by night. Once we're in our rooms and the door's shut, we can't get out. And if we try to escape in daylight, we'll be seen. Oh dear. Afternoon could still be the best time. When they're dozy after their midday meal. Good idea, Poe. Above all, we must be merry and bright. You two youngsters are not always in high spirits, you know. You must watch me. I'll be ever so merry. And then, you know, they show them kind of exploring the castle and the kind of building anticipation from, you know, first of all, it starts off with this big reveal of like, you know, under me and they're trying to figure it out and then they figure it out and then they're, you know, they've got to figure out a way to get out and the stakes just getting kept getting higher and higher and then finally they escape and then they get underground and it just kind of goes literally huh, downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are amazing. If the previous episode had the missed opportunity for BBC merchandising with the Puddle Glum kicking action figure, this has the missed opportunity for the theme park ride. Which is the slide down underland. Oh, yeah. That really was like, oh, my goodness. This is like, okay. A very strong, like, you know, 20,000 leagues. No, no. What's the other one? Um, Journey to the Ascent of the Earth, where they just, like, they just, like, start sliding. They go down and down. You don't really get the sense of, like, you're literally going to the center of the earth. And I feel like you've just been, like, walking just a little bit. I do feel like it was sort of a missed opportunity because I felt like they could have done that on a smaller budget. Just turn the camera sideways. And it's steeper. Something, something. Like, yeah. The Ron Howard film, Thirteen Lives, with Viggo Mortensen. I, I was, it was riveting the whole thing, and it's you feel claustrophobic mm-hmm. in the film. Yeah. And it's just the camera, but it, all it is, it's really just the camera angles and and everything. You feel like, oh my goodness, like I'm gonna suffocate <laughs> watching this. But I wish they could have done some of that with some better directing here. Mm. Um, but it wasn't bad. I mean, I, I in general with the. Sinking down into Underland. 
it's not all super successful, but I appreciate the attempt at acknowledging the kind of the psychological oppression of being underground. No, they they have the actors voice it. They also the gnomes are clearly not human. Um, they they do make that clear. Okay, you're entering. You're you're in another country. And yet, I think again, going back to my worst thing, the performance of the warden. Although his although he looks weird, he just he feels very human, though. You know, he feels just like a normal guy, right. even though he's, he's obviously makeup is crazy. I know, but unfortunately, there's a lot of that with a lot of the animal actors and non-human characters in in the BBC. I feel like the best exe- exception to that is Warwick Davis's Reaper Cheap. Yeah. That's true. Um, I could kind of suspend. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a little person in a costume, but uh, I could suspend disbelief the best. Like, oh, this is a talking mouse. This is not a guy walking around in a costume. What are you saying that the bowling human beavers weren't convincing enough for you? <laughs> I every time you say that, there's sound effect <laughs> plays in my head. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, you know how now that there's all these memes everywhere of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, where like someone will edit the footage, so like they're doing like like Gimli's playing the saxophone at the Council of Elrond or something. I feel like what? someone needs to just like you know they're walking with the beat you know, along the dam, and this bowling ball is coming along. And Somebody make that, please. Someone do it. On a darker note, I did appreciate the attempt to acknowledge that the psychological oppression of being underground not all of it is super successful but when jill is first slides down there and she says we will never get out again good job by camilla that could be a really melodramatic cheesy kind of line yeah, but he's like, who cares he's like i like how the boys are arguing like when did i leave it i think you left it no no i think i left it this other place who cares who cares no, I like that. And we moment. talked about the claustrophobia. Now, there is a bit where Tom Baker does says, I'm a Marshall, I go, I need the sun. And I like the idea behind that, but uh, maybe the acting wasn't great. Yeah, but it just didn't It didn't make sense in the delivery and in the timing from when, like, five seconds ago, he's saying, it's all right, Joe. You hold on to my ankles. They did him dirty a little bit in that moment, mm-hmm. I felt like. Well, that's a good transition to my best thing. Um, my favorite thing. I, I decided to go with a really specific little moment which is when Puddleglum comforts Jill, when she's going through her claustrophobia. I can't! I can't go into there and I won't! You must follow the others! can't! You don't understand. She hates being underground. She hates being in dark, closed-up spaces like this. You must go on. I I tell you what, Cole. I'll go first and, and you can hold on to my heels. And... Scrub can go behind you, and he'll hold on to your heels, and that way it won't be too bad. And it really felt like Public Lone was so concerned for Jill. And that was maybe the first time in this BBC series where I really felt emotional and really felt attached to the characters and really felt invested for a moment there. I think a lot of it was Tom Baker's performance, but Mm. just that he wanted to be close to Jill and help her out, and he knows there's nothing he can really do to make her feel better, but... He's going to do what he can. I just I just really felt him really being his concern for Jill in that moment. Well, that little moment um, bef- before they go into the, you know, what's basically an almost a normal hallway, uh, <laughs> which takes away the moment. But but in the acting of the three main actor uh, characters, uh, it's like the, one of the first times you really start to feel like they care about each other, um, which by the end of the story, you really have to feel like they all really do care about one another. <laughs> Uh, but I thought all of them in, in that moment, you felt like they were actually, they cared about what happened. They weren't just bickering for comic effect or, 
you know, dismissing one another's, you know, concerns or whatever to, to, for a punchline or something. Yeah. There's some stuff in the book that I so regret. I, I don't know a way to do it justice in a movie. Uh, and they didn't really try here. I don't blame. I mean, they kind of did, I guess. I mean, they did. It's in the dialogue. So in the book, they all s- slide down into Underland. And it's loud because there's rocks falling and ah, and they're screaming. Ah, ah, and they finally fall down there and all the rocks stop. And it's just silence for a moment. And the book says the darkness was so complete that it made no difference at all. Whether you had your eyes open or shut, there was no noise. And that was the very worst moment Jill had ever known in her life. Supposing she was alone. Supposing the others. But slowly she hears movement and realizes that she's not the only one. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how to get that. They, they kind of have it here where Jill does in this say something yeah. along those lines like, oh, I'm so glad you guys are here. I thought I was alone. But that's such an incredible personal moment in the book. And I just, man, I think about that often. Uh, how utterly scary that, that that would be, that that despair, which is what mm-hmm. the Silver Tears is about ultimately is the despair. Yeah. Part of the problem the filmmakers had here is it's really in this story to try to stay faithful to it you you, ha- you can't just have minutes and minutes and minutes to go by with no nothing visual to the audience yeah it's tough you have to have something and it kind of takes away it's unfortunate in, in, in the book you know you get the sense of them been waiting around for maybe hours before b- b- before the gnome appears yeah it's hard to do that in a movie um i, I was even thinking like why is it that moria felt uh more dark and i was like well I, because in that story what they could do is they could have the door collapse and go to pitch black for like a second, and then Gandalf lights up. It creates sure, light. and, and then you like, could say like, "Wait a minute, where's all that light coming from throughout Moria?" And it, it right, you can just sense. say that, and and you can have that moment of pitch blackness. That's then so they would have had to do something like you know change it. Where like it's pitch black for a few seconds, and then the warden shows up immediately. Right. Or, you well, know, you know, it's it, hard to pull it off in a movie, but it could work really well for a play. All the lights go out. Mm, and it, and yeah. it, you're in darkness along with the characters is hearing their voices for, may, for maybe a couple minutes and they can do a scene change uh, as That's things one are thing, dark. So for, for those who don't know, so I, I am a movie buff. I'm not like I'm not a theater buff. I love film, um, but I would never say it's superior. I really love a lot of things you can do in theater. You could never do in film. For one thing, costumes uh, is so much better in theater. You can just do so much more with costumes and get away with more than in film. But yeah, something like that you could do uh for sure in theater well speaking of costumes i was so disappointed they didn't do the the costumes the giants give them in the book uh jill and scrub get these absurdly colorful outfits the giants give them puddle glove nothing would fit him so he's just wearing his regular clothes what's interesting is in the they kept the dialogue though well when they're escaping harfang and jill says something like wow we must really stand out in these clothes and but they like, don't it's really. It's just clothes. your normal clothes. Yeah. Whereas in, in the book, they're wearing these like clown outfits. And I always imagine that maybe J- maybe Although Jill. It does help that they they can run at superhuman speed and like in like two seconds they're like four miles from Harfang. I mean that helps a lot. But I would have loved to. It, it almost feels like a, a, in the book, it feels like part of the punishment of going to Harfang is they have to leave in these stupid clothes. It's like part. part but the oh the the, the indignity. But uh, can I also say there was a moment I'm sure it was completely unintended comic relief when they take off and of course fortunately the giants can't see very far and they say hi hey, 
There they are. Release the hounds. <laughs> Little bitty hounds. Which is accurate. Them. It makes sense. The it's lions accurate. would be. It's accurate. And of course, it's they're exactly in proportion to Jill and Eustace and Fuddleglum. But the fact that like, they're out of frame by the time the dogs show up, it looks like they're all, I, I agree. And, and it doesn't help when you finally get a close-up of the dogs that don't have the giants in it. And they're not like comped in. They're like real dogs. They look quite happy, actually. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they did. I mean, even in Land of the Wardrobe Walden version, they had to digitally remove the tails for the wolves because yeah. they were just too happy right. on screen. And some of them are like going through the snow, and you look at them in some of the shots, like this dog looks yeah. very happy. All right. So, a few things I want to get to. Uh, I want to squeeze into this episode. Um, effects were still, I think, overall, though, pretty good. For the most part, when, the, when they're walking yeah. around, the scale is a little inconsistent, but for the most part, when they're walking around with the giants, I think it, it feels huh. it feels really believable. Every I think like yeah. every third shot or so was like, oh, but the, the rest lo- looks pretty good. Uh, Michelle in the Talking Beast Facebook group pointed that out. It didn't. The, the scaling didn't take me out of the film. Yeah, didn't take me out of the movie. Now, what I will say, I would love to see like a, pr- a proper big budget movie adaptation of the Silver Chair with a more developed version of the giants' culture and a more developed version of. What would creatures that are that big do instead of just, well, it's just exactly the same thing that we do, just scaled up. And it wasn't very consistent. Like they have things like there's a close up. I think it's the scene where Jill is, oh, can we come to the feast? And she's talking to the queen and it shows a shot of them. And it looks like straw or something that's on the ground behind them. But why would the straw be huge? You know, they have extra big, the giants have extra big straw for some reason. Uh, and then you have the cookbook, which is the cookbook that doesn't look, it's like a pocket size cookbook for a giant, I guess it was. I, okay. For some reason I, I was looking at this and I, I had to take myself out of it going, what size would it be like? Oh yeah. Let me look. I'm looking over like, okay, my book would be about this big, which <laughs> if I were holding like the, the, the puddle glum action figure would be about this big. <laughs> so maybe it's not too bad. It's a little confusing. Uh, in the Talking Bees Facebook group, Julia pointed out uh, that the giants are roasting a pig at one point, and I don't know. I noticed yeah. that it's a ginormous pig, it's a huge pig. <laughs> they should have had the they should have had the giant pig chasing them, not the normal sized dogs. <laughs> that would have been way scarier. That <laughs> way scarier. Uh, and she also, That's but she great. also pointed out in the scene where uh, the cook is falling asleep. There's what looks like a, a deer antlers on, above the fireplace, and they appear to be the correct scale. They, like, they look like relatively uh, smaller deer antlers. So Poor talking stag. I know. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. And, and, and when they're eating stag, well, that must have been a really huge stag as well, in the sense you get too. <laughs> Except that's in the book. Right. But I mean, the but the scale of it, uh, as presented in the movie, I, oh, I, I get right, the sense right, that right. it was wrong. So weirdly inconsistent. It is almost a weird part in the book because you're like, well, I mean, I mean, if you've eaten like rabbit or something, I guess, or a goose, you're like, okay, you get multiple people uh-huh. eating the same thing. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I'm a, oh, that's pretty good. Uh, last little thing, ending on a positive note here. Um, I like the bit when they get to the boat on the Sunless Sea and for a moment, Scrub refuses because he sees they have the banner of the Lady of the Green Kirtle there and he says, I'm not going anywhere under her, I'm, I'm not going anywhere under her banner. Which I thought was an, 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 a, a neat little bit of defiance for Scrub. And also, his previous experience, he was mostly on a boat, sailing under the banner of the king. And so, um, I thought that was a that was a neat moment for Scrub, I thought. I think this is this episode 
has added some cool moments for Scrub that aren't in the book. Scrub doesn't have quite as much to do in the book because it's mainly Jill's story. But they've, they've given Scrub a lot more here. And as a result, Jill's not so obviously kind of the primary character in the BBC adaptation like she is um, in the book. Do you like that or dislike it? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I mean, I in the book, I like Jill as a character so much. And I like how much we get inside her head. I mean, every single scene. Some people will challenge me on this, like Jill being the main character of the silver chair. Flip open to a- almost any page in the book. And we know exactly more or less what Jill is thinking and feeling in that moment. We don't necessarily know how Scrub feels. It, it is. It is. That's a good point. It is almost inevitable i feel like though because i'm thinking about the harry potter books you're in harry's head all the time he's still definitively the central character in the movies but not quite to the same extent you know i don't feel like i'm in harry's head in the movies yeah i think that's a pretty good example yeah and i mean do i like it uh i guess i do because the added material for scrub is mostly good stuff and david thwaites does a good job um but i also like being but there's a lot of moments like the one i read with jill thinking she's alone there's a lot of moments of being in jill's head from the book that i really really miss um at the same time so they had to take out some awesome stuff but they gave me some cool stuff in in return so so are you gonna absolutely love 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 pot glum in the next episode i hope so because i i I get i (laughs) because you really liked him in this episode more so than the others well puddle glum in this one I don't know. I guess I, I I felt Tom Baker's performance was not as strong in this one as it was in the previous episodes. And he's played for laughs a lot in this one and doesn't really he doesn't really do much in this one. <laughs> I, I don't know. But the point is, I've been supposing that, well, maybe it's all going to pay off when we get Puddle Glum's big speech. And maybe I'll say, hey, whether this is my Puddle Glum from the book, it's still a good Puddle Glum. It all, it all culminated in his speech and. We'll see. I, I, I'm assuming the speech is going to be in the next episode. That would be my. What do you guys think? I mean, they're obviously going to meet the Lady of the Green Curl. Safe assumption. They're, they're obviously going to meet the Lady of the Green Curdle. They're, well, they're going to meet Prince. Well, they're going to meet Prince Rillian, and I think they'll destroy the Silver Chair. But will I think the cutoff is going to be when they actually get back to Narnia, and then then, then there's a whole final episode of just la di da. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, (laughs) I don't know if it'll necessarily go that far. It might go to when the they're trying to escape the when he's awake and they're trying to escape and like they're like, oh my gosh, the gnomes are coming for us. That would make more sense. They decide to leave. They kill the witch. They decide to leave. And somewhere in between them deciding to leave and getting back is when they cuts off. That would make more sense. My prediction would be, obviously, they're going to meet Rillian. That's a lot of dialogue they got to get in there. And then they're going to destroy the silver chair. And then I think the Lady of the Green Kirtle is going to appear. And I think that will be the cliffhanger ending. Is the Lady of the Green Kirtle first arriving? Mm. Maybe they kill her. I think they're going to kill that woman. (laughs) I must be singing Ding Dong the Witch is Dead by the end of the next podcast, my friend. Maybe I say probably they haven't. I think the witch is probably alive at the end of the next episode. We'll see. Okay, we're taking bets, folks. Well, what do you think? No watching. Jim Fan, is the witch alive at the end of the next episode? I want to say no. Okay. She did. Okay. She did. (laughs) We will find out. We'll find out. I could be totally wrong, but I want to say that she'll be dead. <laughs> but you're not. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast. Visit narniweb.com to join our community and stay up to date on the latest Narnia news. Please post a comment below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. 
Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Knights of Narniweb. Until next time, further up and further in. Thank you.